0: Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you once again tonight for the salvation that you have made possible through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it does not depend in any way on human merit, but completely upon his merits. And that we can be assured of salvation because we place our trust for that issue into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work. We do not rely in any way upon our good works, religious works, or other works, but only upon the finished and complete work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Tonight we're going to continue with our uh, review uh, from last year on the uh, church and the nature of the Church, because as we progress this year, we're going to deal with that last chapter, which we never covered last time, which will be entitled, uh, the chapter 5, The Homecoming of the Church. And that will produce, then, the issue of the rapture and so on, and the timing of the rapture into world history. But to discuss that, we have to first understand very clearly what we mean by the Church. People get involved in all these extracurricular activities with eschatology and uh, they're rank amateurs when it comes to understanding the Old Testament and the nature of the church. So tonight we're going to um, just mention a few other things, other ideas associated with these great events. Of course, we've been looking at the the event of the Ascension and Session, and this event is the one that... uh, sets apart a new age. It was the rejection of Jesus Christ by the nation Israel that led to a surprise age. <clears throat> and that is that after the cross of Christ, after His ascension, and of course we have Pentecost, of the Holy Spirit coming to earth, we have this inter-advent age. And this inter-advent age is a problem because there's very little, if no, revelation about it in the Old Testament. All we have in the Old Testament is we have the suffering Messiah here and we have the glorious Messiah here and we now know that it's the same Messiah coming in two different events. But in the Old Testament they didn't know that. They mixed these kind of things up. So the Inter-Advent Age raised an issue. Uh, what's happening? What's, what's going on here? And the Lord Jesus Christ began to fill the disciples in, beginning in Matthew chapter 13. There's a series of parables in that, and then he goes on and discusses things later on. And the themes that the Lord Jesus talks about is he's going away. And the disciples don't like that, because he was supposed to be the Messiah, and the Messiah was supposed to bring in the kingdom. So what's this going away business? Well, it means the kingdom is postponed. And so the inter-Advent age introduces... Um, Another example of a theme that that we should be familiar with from two other events. Think back to the flood of Noah, that event. Now, what was the doctrine that we learned to associate with that historic event? And it was the doctrine of judgment and salvation. Think back to another event, the exodus. And what was the doctrine we learned to associate with that historic event? Judgment Salvation. So let's look at that Judgment Salvation and we'll find that the Inter-Advent Age is an age that illustrates Judgment Salvation of all things. We had traditionally, every time we talk about Judgment Salvation, we say the same things. So here's a review of the Doctrine of Judgment Salvation. You don't have salvation spoken of in the Bible without a simultaneous speaking about judgment. There never is salvation apart from a judgment of some sort. The people in Noah's day weren't saved without the other people who disbelieved being judged. The people in the Exodus weren't saved without Egypt being judged. Now think about it. Every time there's salvation, there's also judgment of some sort. So in this case, we are going to have a judgment and salvation, and the judgment and salvation takes on a kind of a different dimension, but it has these same five things. So I'm going to review the five things that we associated with judgment and salvation. These things occur again and again and again in the Bible. What you want to do is get used to thinking in these terms, so that when you run across salvation in the Bible, something here will click, and you have to think in terms of, well, if God is saving something, delivering something, is delivering from something. So he's judging what he's delivering from. Okay, now... The first thing we always associate with God is a gracious God, and he always gives grace before judgment. Right? What did he do with Noah? Noah preached. Noah told people it's going to be a judgment someday. Mm -hmm. No, there's not going to be a judgment. Well, yes, there is. No, there's not going to be a judgment. Well, there was. Same thing with what did Moses go to Pharaoh repeatedly and ask that he peacefully let Israel go out of Egypt over and over and over. And every time Pharaoh rejected and hardened and hardened his heart. See the theme? God is gracious before judgment. And that's true of everything. I mean, the the resolution Congress is talking about and uh, going to war is a judgment. And in the book of Deuteronomy, gives you the rules of war. The whole doctrine of just war is covered in the book of Deuteronomy. And one of the things in the book of Deuteronomy is you offer peace first, and if peace is not accepted, then you go to war over an issue. Of course, we have this clown, Nebuchadnezzar Jr. over there, who for the last 10 years has defied everybody on the planet, uh, and probably won't. You know, he'll still continue defying the. Um, the inspectors and so on. In fact, last night it was interesting. I understand I didn't stay up to hear it, but um, one of my fellows that I work with said he watched Nightline, and one of the UN inspectors said, "You know, you hear about these presidential palaces of this guy, and you think of just you know big buildings. And let me tell you about one of them." And he showed him a map, drew this big area, had hun- dozens and dozens of buildings, and if not hundreds. And he says, ah, that's an area. Now, let me give you some size perspective, one of these little palaces. Let me put onto that map what the entire complex of the Queen of England's castle looks like on top of this. That's Windsor Castle. So this is what we're talking about when we're talking about the inspectors needing access to every area. Can you imagine how much stuff you can hide in a place that big? He has eight of these, plus dozens and dozens of other spots that they don't want the inspectors to be in. So, anyway, judge, grace before judgment, but finally judgment comes. Finally it comes. Because if it doesn't, then there's no credibility to the grace. So, in the church age, how does this apply? In the evangelistic Address of Paul. Let's turn to Acts 17. Watch how this theme. Now, here's an early example of what the gospel looked like when it went out into the pagan world of Paul's day. And we want especially, um, and apparently, by the way, Paul never really finished his address here. In one sense, he never got to the finished work of Christ, never got to the cross, because these people had a, had had were so screwed up that he couldn't even discuss who Jesus was until they got straight in their head that heesu, which is the Greek word for Jesus, and the word for resurrection don't refer to gods and goddesses. That's what they thought. So he has this big, long address, and he finally comes down to the end of it in, in chapter 17 and in verse 30. Now watch how Paul concludes this public address. This is a public hearing. This would be like... Um, Somebody being interviewed um, by the press and by authorities. You might think of a, of a, a Senate hearing on, uh, you know, what is it? Not CNN, but the cable, something where you can watch the live things. And so this would be in, a, analogous to that. Now, watch what Paul does when he comes down to the end of this, this address. Things are getting kind of hairy at this point because Paul is telling the truth and these people are going to react to what he says. In verse 30, he says, having overlooked the times of ignorant, God now is declaring. In other words, he wasn't before. Something's changed here. In this age, God declares to all men, everywhere, that everyone should repent. Because... He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So, what we find here is that the gospel is a threat. It's just like the message of Noah, it's just like the message of Moses in Exodus that it is grace. Yeah, it's grace, but it's grace prior to a judgment that is coming. It is grace with a threat involved in it. Very rarely today in evangelism do you ever hear anything like this. Because we've gotten so sloppy and so careless in how we preach the gospel. It's some little thing about, uh, it amounts to a psychological trip of some sort. You know, you have your pills and I have Jesus. That sort of thing. He can give you, accept Jesus and you'll know, have a happy life. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this kind of thing. It's the fact that we all have to give an accountability someday before God. And what are you going to plead your case? You know, I'm necessarily not going to go up there and say, well, it's because I taught classes or I did this or I did that. That's not merit before God. The only merit sufficient to be acceptable with God in this day of judgment is going to be the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you're not going to base your appeal... In God's divine court, on the finished work of Christ, you can kiss it off right now, because you're not going to make it. And that's the gospel. We all face a judgment and an accounting before our Creator God. Now, what are you going to do about that? That's the issue. And people can pretend God doesn't exist and all the other, other smoke and mirrors. But bottom line is that you have to face God alone, and someone else, everyone else has to. I do, your wife, your husband, your friend, your sister, your brother, and, and you're not going to be around to hold hands. This is all by yourself kind of thing. So pastors aren't going to be there, lawyers aren't going to be there, um, no one's going to be there. It's just a personal confrontation, finally, between each one of us and God. And the issue is going to be, what is the basis of acceptability? And, you know, hope, be, be careful that you prepare for that day. And that, and that day you will claim the finished work of Jesus Christ, not something else. So the gospel is a threat. And all during this inter-advent age now, the threat is approaching. Because this inter-advent age is only an inter-advent age. It is going to come to an end. And when it does, it comes to an end in judgment. So therefore, this is also known as the age of grace. Why? Because God has weakened his standards? No, no. Because he has put off judgment and he is preaching the gospel throughout this period of the Inter-Advent Age. second thing we said about this judgment salvation is every time you have something like this happen, God has perfect discrimination. In other words, God perfectly discriminates one group of people from another group of people. Now, that word discrimination I'm using deliberately tonight, because it's a word that is politically not popular to use today. The word discrimination, if you go out in the street and use it, and you use it in the classroom or some group of people you're with, that has a negative connotation. I mean, think of how it sounds. Yeah, I I discriminate. Now, the fact that it has a negative implication is is unfortunately a sign of our times because if you look in a dictionary, that's not the connotation of discrimination. (laughs) used to be said, here's how you used to use the word discriminate. When you go from being a child to an adult, you learn to discriminate. When you go from a childhood to adulthood, you learn to discriminate. You have discrimination. It used to be considered to be an asset of growing up that's what discrimination means. Think of it another way. Can you think of any law, any regulation ever written in the history of man that doesn't depend on discrimination? Think about it. If you have a law, it discriminates between those who obey it and those who don't. There's nothing wrong with discrimination. Discrimination is essential to life like oxygen. Where we get in trouble is, we don't distinguish the criteria used to discriminate. That's the problem today. So let's think clearly, and let's not buy all the garbage that's out there. The issue today should not be discrimination. You have to discriminate. You have to discriminate between the criminal element and the ordinary citizen element. You have to discriminate between good and evil. You have to discriminate between people who are your close friends and people who aren't. All these are legitimate forms of discrimination. You learn as you grow older to discriminate the cultural art forms from the junk. That's a taste, that's a discrimination. So, the question isn't discrimination. The question is the criterion that you're using to discriminate with. So, therefore, obviously, there are wrong criteria. You can judge a person because the color of their skin. They can't help that. They were born with it. So we have no business discriminating people in the sense of looking down at somebody because they happen to have different genes than we do. They're not responsible for their genes, so that's not a good criteria for judgment. But there are other judgment criteria, and so what the trick the world system is trying to get us, trip us up now, is by so developing a distaste for any kind of discrimination, everything's going to go. So it's a, it's a foot-in-the-door kind of argument, slippery-slope type argument. Don't discriminate, don't discriminate. Why? Because then we can have every pervert in the world accept it. Except what minority will always be discriminated against? The believers in Jesus Christ. Very interesting how this works. Every other group on a college campus today can get away with literally almost anything they want to do, except those who want to preach the gospel. Those are the only kids on campuses today that are discriminated against. Gays aren't discriminated against. I mean, pretty soon pedophilia is going to come in like a flood. So, I mean, you name a pervert and it's it's going to be there. In fact, they have uh, the whole, they have courses now, and Carl's universities. white why uh, pedophilia is good. So, this is happening, except don't have the gospel on the campus. We can't allow, possibly can't allow that. And of course, that's because the world system is threatened by the gospel, because whether we know it, whether they know it, Satan knows it, and he knows that the inter-advent age is going to come to an end, and he's going to be on the losing end when it... When it terminates, so we have grace before judgment. We have perfect discrimination. God discriminates between those who accept Christ and those who reject Christ. Turn to John three sixteen. Right after that passage that everybody can quote from the Gospels, we have the discrimination over the person of Jesus Christ. Now God is making Jesus Christ the criterion of discrimination. This is not popular. This is not something that's going to get voted in because people don't want to. They don't want to hear this. But, you know, I didn't write the gospel, but look at this. Verse 17, right after verse 16 now. Everybody can quote verse 16, but look at the context. Look at verse 17. God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but the world should be saved through Him. He who believes is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So clearly, discrimination is going on, and who is the criterion? Jesus Christ. So during the inter-advent age, a perfect discrimination and separation of humanity into two groups, not race, not Poverty versus the rich, not one tribe versus another tribe. The only criterion of discrimination is whether a person believes or rejects Jesus Christ. That's the criteria of discrimination in the church age as far as God's concerned. Then the third thing we've always mentioned about judgment salvation is that salvation is only one way of salvation. Think about it. How many arcs were there in Noah's day? How many boats? One, how many ways were the firstborn protected in Egypt on the night of the angel of death? There's only one way, wasn't there? Blood on the door. There wasn't, uh, uh, you couldn't you know, put a newspaper out in the front and say, I've done 8,252 good works over the past 10 years. Didn't cut it with the angel of death. He only wanted to see one thing, blood on the door. No blood, kill him. Blood on the door? I'll pass over. And so, when we come now to the cross, that's why there's only one way of salvation. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Not two ways. Not fifteen different religious ways to heaven. There's only one way. And this shouldn't shock people. Because if you think back in biblical history, it is the same pattern we saw in the flood, the same pattern we saw in Exodus. So, it's not like something new here. This is just biblical thinking. Then we said that when God judges, he judges both man and nature. Man isn't the only thing that's judged. The flood affected the earth. Pointing at 2 Peter, it affected the atmosphere. So, the whole cosmos. So when God judges, it's a cosmic type of thing. When God judged in Egypt... Anybody remember what accompanied the judgments in Egypt? Geophysical catastrophes, right? Well, during our age, he's judging, and he's going to judge, of course, with a lot of catastrophes of the second coming, but involved in this, as we developed last year, is that the church is in conflict with the heavenly powers. And there's an unseen angelic conflict going on during this inter-advent age over the person of Jesus Christ. Then we said that, in all cases, the way of salvation is by faith. Not by works, but by faith. It's always by faith. Again, in Noah's day, people had to accept the fact that the flood was going to come by faith. It hadn't come. People were in the ark days before the flood started. So how, so how, how come they went in the ark? Because they believed. And the people who didn't go in the ark didn't believe. That's simple. Who put blood on their doors? They didn't see any angel of death. Nobody had seen an angel of death. What's that talking about? Some strange thing Moses is talking about. Well, Moses said it, and they believed it. And the people who believed it did what they were supposed to do. People who disbelieved did and they got caught. And it's going to be the same thing in the church age. There's a way of salvation, and it's by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's it. People can accept it or reject it, but that doesn't change it. Salvation is by faith in Christ and by faith alone. So those are the concepts associated with this inter-advent age, and it's going on, it's gone on for 1900 years. So that's, that's what the Ascension and Session did. We talked about Pentecost. What do we say about Pentecost? Pentecost was the overt, historic, public evidence of what? If you were there with a video camera, and you filmed what went on at Pentecost... What would that be proof of? What did Peter get up and say after it was all over? He said, people, this stuff that you're seeing here is the manifestation of the fact that Jesus Christ has seated himself at the Father's right hand and he has sent the Holy Spirit to earth. So the church then has both a heavenly origin and an earthly origin derived from what's going on in heaven. Now, right here, I want to comment on something. When did the church start? I didn't say when it was recognized, but when did the church start? And at this point, we're going to talk about, because we want to be clear, because you cannot talk about prophecy or anything else until we're clear about what is Israel and what is the church. So I'm going to draw a contrast up here. Israel... And the church. And a lot of the confusion in prophecy comes because people cannot seem to get into their heads what these two groups are. They are different, they are not the same. Let's turn to Matthew 16 for a moment. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ denies that the church existed in his day. Matthew 16, classic passage. Most of you have run across this because that's the place where Peter's talking about the rock and so on. And so it becomes an issue with Protestantism and Catholicism. We're not talking about that issue tonight, but we are going to the same passage. Matthew 16 and verse 18. And what is the tense of the verb built? Pick out the verb and the sentence in verse 18. And is, the ten- is the tense of the verb past, present, or future? It's future. What does that mean? It means the church wasn't built in Jesus' day. Okay? The church, he will build the church. Now that's interesting, because that means that the church isn't in the Old Testament. Uh, if you, uh, some extra verses on this theme if you want to chase it down. Romans 16, verse 25 and following, Paul calls the church a mystery. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul calls the church a mystery. Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul calls the church a mystery. Romans 16, 25, Ephesians 3, 1, Colossians 1, 26. All these are passages that speak of the church as a new thing, not a previously revealed. Now here's where it helps to get a biblical definition of words. Church is not a noun that refers to every believer in every age. That's the way Reformed theology treats it. Like we said before, we can be very, very grateful to Reformed theology for clarifying the sovereignty of God, the fact that He calls, that He elects, that He is the the end-all of history, that he controls history. We can be thankful for Reformed theology, for saying, articulating sola scriptura, that it is the authority of the Bible, not the authority of church tradition, that is the final court of appeal, and so forth. And for clarifying the gospel. We can be very thankful. But the Reformers couldn't do everything in their day. And one of the things that they never had time to do was to reform the idea of what the church was all about. The Catholic Church is basically a church state. The Protestants substituted for the church state state churches. And both concepts are wrong because that's not what the church is. It's not a state. It's not an organization. The church is something else. And the church, whatever it is, does not refer to every believer in every age. So be careful. When you may be associated with some of your Reformed friends, you'll hear them use the word the church in the Old Testament. Now, here's what they mean. They mean the church is made up of all believers. They also will use the word church in the sense that we sloppily use it, and that is the church is a group of people who could be saved or mixed in with some unsaved. So you could use that for a mixed multitude, so to speak. Those are ways that noun church is used. How else is the word church used that you've heard? What's this thing called? Done that in some people's mind? This is the church? Church building. So sometimes people sloppily use the word church for the building. It's not the building either. It's not all saints either. What is the church? The church is a group of believers in the New Testament, this side of Pentecost. So it was on the day of Pentecost that church began. How do we know the church began on the day of Pentecost? All right, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's talking about the baptism of the Spirit. And we know the baptism of the Spirit first occurred in Pentecost. And Paul says here in verse 13, By one Spirit we were baptized into one body. That's the body of Christ. Verse 12. There are many one body, so also is Christ. So, Pentecost is the time when the church began. It started in a definite hour and minute of a certain month and a certain year. Before that, there was no church. Now, this uh, this concept of when the church started is important. Because as you notice in verse 12 and 13, what is the synonym for the church? Right there in that passage. In there's a, there's a, apposition is the phrase body of Christ. Well, you can't have the body of Christ if Christ isn't here yet. Christ wasn't in the Old Testament in, in incarnate form. He didn't have a body. So, again, the church is dependent upon the ascension and session so that the Lord Jesus Christ is in position. He sends his spirit to complete himself. Think about it this way. What part of the body is Christ in heaven said to be? What's the word, four-letter word, used in the New Testament by Paul for a part of the body that is equated with Jesus? The head. So he is ascended at the Father's right hand, and he is the head of this thing called the body. Well, you just don't have a head walking around without a body, See, in one sense, and we have to say this very, very carefully, in one sense, the ascended and seated Lord Jesus is incomplete. He's filling out his body. This is a strong, strong picture of the unity in the Lord Jesus. And it is a key to interpreting prophecy because the Lord Jesus Christ from this time forward whatever Christ is doing in prophecy the church is doing because the church is part of him so at the at, when he, on the great day when he comes back what does he bring with him? the church why? because it's part of his body he's not distinct from his body so so the head and the body are very closely related and this body one day will be completed and when that body is completed it will be the end of the church and that's the homecoming of the church the body is finished over and done with does that mean there's not going to be believers in history after the church is raptured no there were believers before the church came in Pentecost right well there's going to be believers after the uh, people are going to trust in the Lord after the church leaves and people just like people trust in the Lord before the church existed Why people have a hard time with this is because secretly in their mind they have not understood that the word church refers to a small set of all the believers in all of history. It's a technical expression used for this, right here. The bunch of believers who are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's let's move over to the word Israel. Israel is defined as tribal. It comes out from Abraham, the first Jew. Israel takes a social and political existence in and of itself. It becomes not just a tribe, it becomes a nation. A nation has laws, that's the Torah. A nation has leaders, leadership national leadership, which is kings. The kings are involved in administrating law. They have international relations with other nations. Those are all things that Israel did and does. So Israel is not even like the church. Israel contained believers and unbelievers. Remember Elisha? What did he say? Well, there's nobody beside me. And the Lord said, well, yes, there is. are. There are some thousands, Elijah, beside you that are my remnant. A remnant? What's that mean? It means part of Israel is saved and part of Israel is not saved. Another thing about Israel. It's localized. It has a local existence in a land. So, these are characteristics of that which we call Israel. And therefore, when you, in the Old Testament, read about contracts, the party to the contract is not the church. The party to the contract is Israel. Who was the party to the Abrahamic covenant? The Abrahamic contract. It was Abraham and the seed visualized by God in the contract. We get to the land promise as it's expanded. Remember, there are three. What are the three things? Review three parts of Abrahamic covenant they are the, the seed, the land, and the worldwide blessing. Okay, the seed promise is amplified later on through David, Davidic covenant. The seed is going to be the messianic seed, the Davidic line out of the tribe of Judah the land promise of the Abrahamic covenant is amplified in the Palestinian covenant of Deuteronomy 30, 31, talking about real estate, and where is Israel going to wind up forever? Land, local existence. The other part is that Israel is going to be a worldwide blessing. And how's that amplified? When she gets with the program again, the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. So, Israel has their kind of existence. It's a nation. The church is a group of believers. How many nations are in the church? Well, not as nations, but finally, it's people from every tongue, every kindred, every tribe, and every people group are in the church. So, the church is not localized to one tribe. See, these things, you can't make these two the same. Now, let me show you a passage that that people like to go to to try to prove that Israel and the church are the same thing. Turn to Galatians. In Galatians' last chapter, chapter 6 verse 16. This is a proof text that oftentimes people will use to try to show that Israel has the word noun, the noun, the term Israel has changed meaning in the New Testament. And what they'll do is they'll take you to Galatians chapter 6 verse 16. Paul says, And those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. And they say, well, see, Now there, he's talking to the church, and he's calling the church Israel. But look at that construction of the sentence carefully. There are two groups there, right? There are those, peace and mercy upon them, who walk by this rule, and upon the Israel of God. Now who are the two groups? Gentiles and Jews. The Israel of God, in verse 16, refers to believers who come out of a Hebrew-Jewish background. They are the Israel of God. That's the, it's the remnant. But that's not a label for the church. That's a label for a subset of people inside the church. They're all another group there, in verse 16, those who walk by the rule. And that's, the, he uses this term that refers to the Gentiles there. So, anyway, point is that there's a contrast between this. and That's the big idea to get across here. Don't worry about all the fine details. Just understand that the church is not Israel. Now, the third great event that we've been looking at from last year, we talked about two. We've talked about the Ascent and Session. So on your little timeline of history here, After the Lord Jesus crucified, he goes to heaven. There's the ascension and session. He sends the Holy Spirit. That's Pentecost. And now we have a period in the book of Acts where the church emerges historically from Israel. And that's from Acts 1 to Acts 28. You have three subsequent mini-Pentecosts. Three times the Holy Spirit manifests himself like he did on the day of Pentecost. In Acts eight, he manifests himself with Samaritans. That's a mind blower. Samaritans were considered to be a mongrel mixed race by Jews and kind of like slummy people. And they couldn't imagine that God, the Holy Spirit, you know, would would contaminate himself with these ghetto dwelling people these scumbags, that's the way we refer to them. And yet, God does. So now we have a very interesting thing. Samaritans are not part of historic Israel. Oops! How's the Holy Spirit working in these people? Then in Acts 10, if the Samaritans weren't bad enough, what's the second time the Holy Spirit manifests himself? God's. Gentiles. Now we got Roman Gentiles in the church. Well, they certainly aren't of Israel. And then finally, a third time the Holy Spirit manifests Himself is in Acts 19, and there we have some disciples from John the Baptist who knew nothing about Jesus, apparently, and they're integrated. So now you've got three people. You've got half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentiles. You've got pure Gentiles, and you've got Old Testament saints, all being integrated together in this new thing called the Church. Then, simultaneous with that, you have these massive discussions that go on. There are three critical passages, They're among many, but here's a three that you want to keep in your head. One is Acts 7, the speech of Stephen. And the reason that Acts 7 is so important is that Stephen realizes, as a diaspora Jew, that Israel, in its Torah and in its... Temple, and in its origin, has always objected to what God's been doing, has always resisted what God has done, and they originated, and the Torah was given outside the boundaries of Israel. And what Stephen's doing in Acts 7 simply is this He's articulating the original purpose for the existence of the nation Israel, which was what? What was the third thing in the Abrahamic covenant? A land, a seed, and Worldwide blessing. Israel wasn't supposed to be a greenhouse. Israel was to be a greenhouse in one sense, but the plants grown in the greenhouse, the canon of Scripture, the Messiah, were supposed to come out into the world and bless the world. That's why Israel exists, to give that to the world. So Stephen recognizes that, and that's a big breakthrough. All these Jews are walled up in Jerusalem. He said, like, hey guys, there's a world out there. Think about your relationship with it. In Acts chapter 9, another passage you should keep in mind, the Damascus Road experience of Paul. What did Jesus Christ say to Paul on the Damascus Road? Here here Paul's going along. What does he have in his hand? He has police orders to do what? To put Christians in jail, right? He's killing Christians here. So here he is on the road to Damascus. The Lord appears to him, and what does the Lord say? Blows his mind. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, wait a minute. He's looking up in heaven and he sees the Lord in heaven and the Lord in heaven is saying, you're persecuting me. Paul isn't reaching to heaven. Who is Paul persecuting physically? Believers down here. I believe that the Damascus Road experience in chapter 9 is the source of Of the whole idea that Paul got about the body of Christ. I believe that's how God revealed the body of Christ to him. I think it started right from the very first day that he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. That when he thought about... Paul's a brilliant person and he's sitting there reflecting on what the Lord said to him and he he says, how can I be persecuting you? You're in heaven. So if I'm persecuting you in heaven, when I touch a believer on earth, What does that mean about the union between that believer on earth and the Lord in heaven? It means that somehow, believers physically here on earth are in union with Jesus such that when somebody lays their hand on a believer, they're laying their hand on Jesus Christ. Now, how's that for unity? That's Acts 9. Now, if you were Satan, how would you take advantage of this? You can't get Jesus, can you? Because he's far above you. But if Jesus is unified with believers on earth, how can you get at him? How can you make Jesus feel pain? By persecuting believers. So in the Sudan tonight, where we have black Christians being slaughtered by black Muslims, where we have white atheists persecuting white Christians in various places on earth used to be communist states where that went on where you have Semitic Arab Muslims killing off Arab Christians wherever you see this it is a satanic attempt to hurt, to inflict pain and to cause grief to the person of Jesus Christ that's how serious martyrdom is in the earth. There's more to it than just people dying. There's more to it than this. There's a big chess game going on behind the scenes. And we as Christians, in one sense, can be very thankful for that. And so I want to turn to how Christians experimentally handle that problem. This is a neat example of early Christians dealing with this martyrdom issue. Turn to Acts 4. This really isn't martyrdom in Acts 4, but it's, it's a technique that the early Christians used. And we, we ought to learn this because it may not be too many more years before we better we'll be practicing this. In Acts 4, the problem is that Peter has, and John have gone in and they've healed somebody. Now, and, and what's really ticked people off is they just didn't heal him. They had to go blabbering around the name of Jesus. Couldn't do it in the name of religion. Now, be ecumenical, all things to all men. There had to be this narrow, fundamentalist-type approach where they talked about the name of Jesus. Now, you watch the authorities here, and watch what the church did. So, verse 15. Here they are now. These are the rulers. These are the guys that are pulling the plugs on the whole society here. These are the guys, the backroom boys, that make political deals. So in verse 15, when they had ordered him to go outside of the council, they began to confer one another. See, good politicians. Get the press out of the way, get people out of the way, and then we can talk the real stuff in the smoke-filled rooms. So they said, now, what are we going to do with these guys? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place with them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We can't deny that. See, they tried to do that one. Keep it quiet. Well, this one they couldn't keep quiet. This got on the 6 o'clock news. But in order that we may not spread among the people, let's warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. Now watch how many times in this passage the word N-A-M-E shows up. Remember, what's the name associated with? The ascended, seated Lord Jesus Christ. What in that day would be the authenticated true Messiah. And when they summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name, second verse. But Peter and John answered and said, "Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge." But we cannot stop the church. This now, watch what the church does, beginning in verse 24. Now this is super, and this—if uh, you heard Mike, sometimes he'll he'll talk about praying the scripture back to God. Now here's a classic case of it. Watch what these guys do. In verse 24, when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord. Now they begin to pray. Now, would you notice in verse 24, here they are under a pressure situation. They're confronted with authorities. They have no legal recourse, they have no lawyers on their side, they have nobody to, to go to court with. They've got no troops, no soldiers, no arms. They're completely disarmed don't have any legal advice so they go as helpless believers to the Lord in prayer now what is the first thing that they do? they pull out of the framework notice what was the first event in our framework? creation creation why? because it's the act of creation that defines God God, man and nature, remember the doctrines? they all come out of creation, so what do they do first? They go back and they quote the Old Testament. Oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now why do you suppose they did verse 24? Let's think about it. Let's get inside their heads. Because you're going to have to do this someday and you might as well get your head straight. Why do they go back to creation in this kind of a situation? What does that do for them? Here they're facing political power. What do they need to do? They need to have assurance of what? That that God is in control of, of these people. These people are powerful people. And I've got to know, when I'm praying, if I'm going to be stable, and I'm not going to fall apart and turn into a whining crybaby over this thing, and be a nervous wreck, and get my blood pressure up to 200 and something, what am I going to do? I've got to rest somewhere. So where do I put my feet? Where do I get a resting point? I go back to who God is. I go back to the fact that He is sovereign, He is righteous, He is just, He is loving, He is omniscient, He is omnipotent, and so forth, and so on, and so forth. Go back to that essence of God. He is the Creator, therefore do that. And you can calm your soul very often doing this. It's just a mental exercise to go through this. It takes you about two minutes to run through the attributes of God and and it's it's just like cleaning your soul like an internal bath nice warm bath and it calms you down because now it's not you it's not this situation it's not that person you can focus and rest on the God who has created notice the last part of that quote he has made all things in them Okay. Now, verse 25, having rested in the character of God, they're going to go on, they're going to quote another song, another passage of the Old Testament. So see how their scripture control their prayers? This is what Mike means when he says, praying the scriptures back to God. He's not talking about praying the rosary or something here. This is not, uh, you know, just blah, blah stuff. This means to think through the scriptures. And you quote the scriptures back to God. Now, why does that work? Because it's God said it. You know, you can at least be guaranteed your, your petition's going to be right if you base it on what he told you to think. So all they're doing is protecting the design of their petition back to God by going back to the scriptures. And notice, does anybody recognize where verse 25 and 26 coming from? It's a passage we covered a couple of weeks ago. Look, if you have a study Bible, look in the margin. Where does verse 25 and 26 come from? Anybody? Psalm 2. Yep. And remember we went back to Psalm 2 and we said Psalm 2 was used by the early church to define what? The Son of God. Remember, one of Jesus' names. Comes out of Psalm 2. So isn't it interesting? They're going right back to what we call a Messianic Psalm to deal with this issue. Now the Messianic Psalm is quoted only in part Notice they don't quote the part of Psalm 2 that talks about the king inheriting the world because that hasn't happened yet. What has happened is there's an objection against the king. Now, verse 27, here's the key of praying in faith. And this is a key that you grab hold of this and it will be a powerful stabilizing device in your life. Because what they do in verse 27 is they take the word of God and they connect it Point by point with the circumstance. Now, watch how they do this. They don't just quote the Bible, verse 25. 26. They quote it, but they understand it, and verse 27, they apply it. Here's what their explanation of it is For truly in this city, they were gathered together. Now, where's that verb come from? Look back in verse 26. See where gathered together occurs in Psalm 2? They're going to use the vocabulary of the scripture they quoted to bracket and control the circumstance. This is what we call strategic envelopment. Here's the problem. Some big mess that's happened. okay? And you've got to get a handle on this or you're going to be flubbing all over the place. So you've got to get a handle on what's going on. So these people have got to get a handle. So what they're going to do, they're going to surround that problem with the Word of God and they're going to crush it. And this is the process. Step by step, they're surrounding it. So here they are. They say, in this city, that means right in their circumstance. So all of a sudden, Psalm 2 is not something a thousand years before in David's day. They're talking about, in this city, there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus. So clearly, they're calling him Christ because at the end of verse 26 is the word Christ, this anointed one. They've gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, by the way. Now the word anoint is related to the word Christ because Christ in the Old Testament is mashach, it's a Hebrew word, to anoint. Remember the oil Samuel poured on, on David? That was anointing oil. That's from which we get the word mashach. Christ to us has become kind of a, some people curse word, but other people it's just kind of a title. But that's not the Hebrew. The word Christos refers to that little oil going on. It refers to the anointing. So, see how loaded this sentence in verse 27 is? First of all, the verb, gathered together. In other words, what these people have done in this city is exactly what you said was going to happen in the word of God. They gathered together against Jesus, whom you anointed. You made him the Christ. So they're referring to the Father. See, what they're doing is, this is that Jewish bargaining. They come to God and they're actively interacting. God, you anointed this guy. We didn't do this. You anointed him. Then what do they do? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate. See, they weren't afraid to name names. They weren't afraid to deal with individuals. They plugged Herod and Pontius Pilate. What did Herod do, by the way? What, what Herod of course the whole Herodian family was screwed up, but I mean, there are two Herods that you can think of. Uh, one beheaded John the Baptist, and the other one killed all the babies in Bethlehem. So you can argue about which Herod, probably the second one, I mean the one that killed John the Baptist. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, who were the Gentiles in verse 27, Romans. Romans and the peoples of Israel. Now look what they do. This is so cool how they're doing this. Here they are. they got the promises of God. They matched this part of God's Word with this part of the problem. Boom. They connected it. Then they connected another part. See what they're doing? They're connecting things in their circumstance with things in that verse. They're drawing the wires tight. They're tightening up on this thing. Now what they do... Because they started in the right place, because verse 24 is the Creator, made all things. Now see how they conclude? Verse 28. These guys, these politically powerful men, did whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. In other words, these guys meant it for evil, but you meant it for good. There's something good that's going to come out of this. This is the Romans 8.28. See, verse verse 28 here is nothing but Romans 8.28 in the context of Acts 4. Same concept. God is in control. And Pilate may have thought he was the the big, big boy on the block. Herod might have thought he was the big man on campus. But in the final analysis, these guys are just doing what you've allowed. Remember what Jesus' words were in the trial when the priest got really ticked off and he said, answer me, i got authority over you. And what did Jesus say back to him? You don't have any authority over me except that which God gives you. Now how's that put down? And this is the way you put things down. Verse 28 is a knockdown verse. And it's a spiritually powerful club that can be used to suppress things. It's a powerful tool here. And verse 28-9 now is is the concluding petition out of this prayer. And now, Lord, you take note of their threats and grant thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence. And while thou dost extend thy hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. See, they go back to the name what their answer to the priest was? Give me strength, Lord, so I can speak some more. Were these guys intimidated? The church wasn't intimidated because they had a lot of hot air and baloney people complaining. It wasn't a threat to them. It only was a threat to them. But they managed the threat. They responded to the threat. They crushed the threat in their soul first before in their environment. Notice the battle is in the mind. Ninety percent of your suffering and my suffering occurs right here, and it, and it's got a, the battleground is right here. The battleground, in your life, isn't out there; it's right here. And this is the battleground they faced. And this is a wonderful passage of scripture to show how they managed the battle up here, so that when they went out in society, they weren't they weren't they weren't trying to be angry with these people. Don't don't get the wrong picture. These guys, they're not belligerently seeking a fight. They're being very gracious, very courteous, but very determined. These people, you can't stop these people. This is what Jesus meant, "...the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church." And why? Because these people took it to God in prayer, and they asked for God's forgive me boldness. And you can see at the end, verse 31, he did give them boldness. He answered the prayer all right. So that's the emergence of the church, a powerful new thing, the body of Christ. And next week we will continue a little bit more in the review, and I hope to have the first set of notes out by next week on the new stuff. But we want to move forward always thinking in terms of the rest of the framework, so we connect this and it all plugs together. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you have provided for our need. We thank you for these lessons, these incidents that happen in these Christians' lives in another century, in another place. But we here in um, Jarrettsville can look tonight and we can benefit from these battles that these people faced. How they managed their trouble. How they dealt in their heart with their problems. How they took your word of God and they exegeted it, they exposited it, they took it apart and used it to wrap around all their problems. And we are amazed to watch how these young Christians who basically were Christians only a few weeks when this thing happened. We thank you for their boldness, for your Holy Spirit, who has been sent to us from your Son at your right hand. In whose name we pray, amen. Some Q&A in... maybe 20 minutes or so. Um, so, we've had some questions, but are there any from the floor? Yes.
1: I keep, you know, aiming for the same group of questions, just a little different twist. Um, in that one verse that you we were uh, talking about, I'm trying to find one I'm um, having uh, There, it's Galatians 6.15, Israel of God. And you said that's a subset of the people of the church. Um, I'm assuming that in the church age, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you accept Christ in the church in this age, those Jews will be a part of the body of Christ. They're not going to be a part of Israel, are they? Or a remnant of Israel? Are they going to have two places in eternity? Or are they... You know, if this group of Jews right now
0: strictly the body of Christ? They're the body of Christ. Okay. But they they don't lose their Jewish identity. Okay. And the, the issue of, of born-again Jews today, um, that is why the born-again Jews, particularly over the last 50 years since uh, the gathering of Israel, have had this kind of dual existence and it's messianic fellowships have struggled with this um what, what is the role of circumcision for a born again jew for example um what is the issue of shabbat the passover i mean sabbath uh passover the jewish holidays what do they do with these what what's the role and uh i can recommend for you the book that summarizes a lot of these struggles Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's book, Hebrew Christianity. And uh, it's a nice little book about that thick. And it's written by a guy who's got his doctorate in in rabbinic studies. Uh, I I went to seminary with Arnold. And um, um, then his friends, we've been friends for years. And uh, Arnold's worked with hundreds of messianic fellowships all over the world. And it's very informed. Uh, He's lived in Israel speaks the language, um, and gives, in that book, a wonderful history of the problem of the Hebrew Christian. The Hebrew Christian really has a problem, because you talk about a discriminated person. They're kicked out of their own families, and then they're not accepted by Gentiles. And they really have a a heartbreaking problem, many of them. Um, Arnold was the one who made me aware that there's a dirty name in the Hebrew language for Hebrew Christians. And it comes because they consider Hebrew Christians to be cowards and traitors to Israel. And the reason for that is that when the armies gathered together around Jerusalem, um, they they gathered together in 68 AD, if I can get remember who the general was. I don't think he was Vespasian, but Vespasian later was involved in it. The Caesar died in Rome, so General Vespasian went back to Rome. He was called back to Rome to take control, and of course, Titus became the general. And during the confusion of this ebb and flow of leadership, the Roman army opened up the perimeter, and Jews could flee out of the city of Jerusalem. They knew they were gonna be seized, finally. And they opened up the, the perimeter, and the Hebrew Christians took off and went up to Syria. Now, the rest of the Jews did not appreciate that. They really, and they haven't forgotten it down through the centuries. But if you're sitting here tonight and you have any acquaintance with the New Testament, why do you suppose the Jews, when the armies opened up the perimeter, fled? Whose instructions were they following? What did Jesus say in Luke? Remember, On on the mount? He was talking to him, and he said, When you see the armies surround Jerusalem, get out. Because they're going to destroy the city. And you people should not be killed along with the rest of the unbelievers. And the, the discipline is coming upon the city because of their unbelief. Now, you guys are believers. You shouldn't be there. And Arnold points out that that history plays another role that we don't often think about as Gentiles. It plays a role in the interpretation of the book of Hebrews because when we read Jewish epistles like Peter, Hebrews, James, that are strongly Jewish epistles, every time we see the word S-A-V-E, we, Gentiles, always think it means salvation, in the sense of going to heaven, phase phase three salvation. But to Jews in that time, that isn't what S-A-V meant. S-A-V meant that you were delivered physically and it produces a totally different concept of what's going on in the book of Hebrews with all the threats you people want to go back into this temple business you want to go back into Judaism you just want you just better watch out because judgments coming you want to be saved you get out of there and because we're Gentiles we don't read it that way and so we come up with all these theological problems with the James and Hebrews and all these epistles when if we just learned to read it the way a Jewish Christian would have read it, we wouldn't have half the problems we've got exegetically. So it's, it's good to make a friend with a Hebrew Christian. I have so benefited from knowing Jewish Christians because it, they've sobered me up on a lot of things about the New Testament. In fact, one rabbi, the guy who started American Board of Missions to the Jews, Rabbi Cohen had a track, and I'll never forget this, because I got somehow I got hold of this track within months of the time I became a Christian while I was in college. And this track, it was a little bitty thing, but it was it was several he made, but I remember one in particular. It was entitled, What It Has Cost the Church to Withhold the Gospel from the Jews. And what Rabbi Cohen's point was that had the church not become so anti-semitic in the first two or three hundred years that it would have had enough Jewish people inside the church who believed in Jesus as the Messiah that it would have controlled our biblical interpretation. In other words, they would have been a healthy influence early on in church history at straightening out some of the stupid ways the Gentiles approached the scriptures. One of the ways they would have straightened us out was the kingdom of God would not be some ethereal, far-off, heavenly thing. The kingdom of God would be the millennial kingdom promised in the Old Testament. They would have preserved that. There wouldn't have been any amillennialism in the church if the Jews had participated in it. See, So the church really cut off its nose to spite its face uh, by becoming so anti-Semitic. And it's very interesting, Augustine being, of course, one of the champions. Uh, and all this came in and 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 it it crippled the church theologically up until really up until the 19th century and I guess what God finally decided to do in the 19th century was get us straightened out anyway whether we liked it or not because in the 20th century the, Israel would come back into existence and we better have the tools to handle to interpret what's going on here now so so all this uh, the Hebrew Christian has a very interesting life. They are the body, yet they are Jews.
1: Mm-hmm. but because he died before was crucified he wrapped up in the Old the mm-hmm. New so what, what's going
0: on with those people where are they in, the well, I mean, in, the oh, in the future where are the Old Testament saints in the future well it's not just a case of where are the Jewish Old Testament saints where are the Gentile Old Testament saints yeah, from Adam forward yeah, you know, yeah, um, yeah. obviously these people exist and obviously, you know, generally, if you look in speculation, I mean, to answer your question, I mean, if it were a clear-cut answer, you'd know it because you, you would have read it somewhere. So I'm not saying that there's no uh, special Bible version that gives you a hot passage on this topic. Um, this this, uh, this is not well revealed in the Old Testament. Jesus obviously implies that they are with God in some way because that's his argument when he says how how do you say Jesus said, how do you say that it is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and you do not believe in the resurrection remember his argument against the Sadducees? Now think about that argument. On the surface it looks kind of funny what he's arguing is the Sadducees didn't believe, they were a group of Jews who disbelieved in the resurrection Jesus said How can you not believe in the resurrection if you're calling God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And he goes on to say, it does not say the God of the historic, it's God who is now the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jesus inferred on the basis of that logic from that text that Jacob and Isaac and Abraham were alive and living somewhere and would be resurrected. Because until they are resurrected, the promises of their eternal salvation uh, in in body. Because remember, salvation is not just salvation of the soul. Salvation is physical, too, physical body. These things have got to be changed, right? They're falling apart. Uh, They're not going to last for eternity. So salvation has to happen to the body as well as the soul. So I I can't go into details on that because I frankly don't know. They must be somehow associated with the kingdom, obviously. But see, the other problem is that we think, well, you know, the church is going to rule in the millennium, uh, be ruling priest and so forth with Christ. But also remember that there's another dimension that is also true of the church, and it introduces spatially a massive problem, the rest of the cosmos. What's the rest of the cosmos all about? The rest of the universe—it's a big place—and when when you have these hints about we're going to judge angels, and angels are in the heavenlies, the church looks like—and there are you know—you kind of get the impression the church is not bound to the planet Earth. The church may have other missions that we haven't seen. Keep in mind, people, the Bible is not the last word as far as a closed. Body of Revelation. Now, let me qualify what I'm talking about here. We just got through looking at a surprise, the inter Advent age. Okay? That was a surprise to the disciples. Would have been a surprise probably to a lot of the Old Testament saints, how that thing worked out. Now, who is to say there aren't further surprises? You know, we build our little prophecy timelines. But let's face it, and we'll get into this later. Church could be raptured, and there could be another age between the rapture and Daniel's 70th week. We don't know that. There's been surprises before, and the surprises always are the same kind. That's this accordion thing, where we think things are tight and close, and then God pulls them apart, and there's a whole other age in there. So don't think that we got everything aced. Uh, What we have, I think, is true, but it does not totally encapsulate history against more divine surprises yes Debbie um, just the whole idea of, of the church in Israel um, and then can you explain
1: the the chapter in Romans I think it's Romans 11
0: mm-hmm. talks about being grafted in it talks about being grafted in and mm-hmm. what's that relationship okay Debbie's asked the question about Romans 10 Romans 11 that talk about the church being grafted in completed the grafting in is, and, and Paul clarifies that to which the church is grafted, not as the nation Israel, but as the Abrahamic covenant, the work, the redemptive work in the Abrahamic covenant. And what he's saying there is that whatever blessings the church has come because of the covenants with Israel. That that's, that revelation starts with, I mean, the work of God that starts with the Abrahamic covenant. Here's examples. Um, uh, let's take mundane things that he also refers to in Romans 3. Where do we get the Scriptures from? Israel. Where do we get our Messiah from? Christ. He's a Jew. Where is the world going to get peace from when Israel says, Blessed is He that comes in the name of the Lord? So, the Scriptures the finished work of christ world peace all come through god's work in israel moreover he says that we're grafted in and when the fullness of the gentiles become in then god's program reverts to the jew the jew will be grafted in and when that happens you have the new covenant See. One of, the, one of the things about Romans 10 and 11, this New Covenant idea. When we have communion, and you, you hear the pastors wherever they are, and you've been in many different churches, but you know one of the things they always say, they quote Jesus saying, this cup is the cup of the New Covenant written in my blood. But the new covenant hasn't fully come into being because one of the promises in Jeremiah of the covenant, first of all, it's given to Israel. Second of all, the sign of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, of the new covenant, is that every Jew will be a believer. That's not true today. So that covenant has not happened yet. But Jesus is in communion and he's saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Well, what does he mean? He means that the basis of that covenant has already formed. Israel's rejected, and there's got to have a little drama here to play out the, 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 the ebb and the flow of what's going to happen. But it's eventually going to, the fulfillment, the covenant will be fulfilled. But the point is that our salvation, our blessings, are there only because we share in the finished work of Christ and the basis of that new covenant. So what Paul's trying to get at in, in Romans 10 and 11, he's trying to cut off anti-Semitism, which he had to deal with, by the way. It's pretty apparent and, and more modern scholars have, have really basically said that one of the reasons behind the, the epistle of Romans is that they had a real race problem going on, a racial genetic Gentile thing going on in, that, in the congregation. And uh, the Gentiles had certain prideful things and Paul had to deal with that in Romans 10:11. And the Jews have very proudful things, and he had to deal with that in Romans 2 and 3. So there, he puts down both sides in that epistle. Um, it's a neat way of watching how the apostles dealt with what we would call a social problem in the church. And, and what I always love about it is, like I always say, and you've heard me say this so many times, is that the guy couldn't brush his teeth without getting the Trinity involved. Um, that's the way Paul thought about life. He, he didn't disconnect the problems from the great doctrines. Now, I wish I had the ability to to do that consistently, but I don't. <clears throat> and that that's an example of, of what the church was doing in Acts 4. <clears throat> they took that whole issue of the Messiah, the promises of the Son of God, and they applied it to Herod and Pontius Pilate. And you just saw what they did there. So that that issue in Romans 10, which we'll get to, that's, that's coming up uh, on the position of the church. It's dependent upon Israel and the work that God did through Israel. We can't ever sever the church away from that. And that's what that cautionary is. But the church is not Israel. Later... When we get into prophecy and the homecoming of the church, we're going to deal with the rapture of the church. And that's a set of prophecies given <clears throat> to the church, not given to Israel, given to the church that speak of the destiny of the church. I'm not talking about the destiny of Israel. It's not given to Israel. It's given to the church. The other hand, however, we have prophecies that are given before Pentecost to the disciples about Israel. And we talk about the abomination of desolation. We talk about the armies encompassing Jerusalem. We talk about cosmic disturbances here and there. And that wasn't addressed to the church at that point. The church doesn't exist in Matthew 24. The church doesn't exist until after Pentecost. So Pentecost hadn't happened yet. The disciples were asking out of a Jewish, Israelitish, Motif. Lord, look at this temple here. I mean, they were just a few hundred yards from the temple, and they're saying, What's the deal? What's going to happen here? It's a totally Jewish question. Nothing to do with the church. So that's what makes prophecy so difficult. And then you walk your way into the book of Revelation. And Revelation is different from the rest of the New Testament. For one thing, the book of Revelation is not soteriologically centered. I mean, as a book. It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about judgment. The whole motif of the book of Revelation is judgment. So you you sharply move from all the epistles talking about grace and God saving us and this and that. And then, bam, you walk over in the book of Revelation and it's judgment. And it's talking about Jews. Talking about the tribes of Israel once again. It's like you, you went into another world somewhere here. What's going on? And it's difficult. Prophecy is not easy to pull together. Yes. In that regard, there are some chapters in Revelation that
1: tell about catastrophes and bad things that are going to happen on the earth. I'm um, beginning
0: Uh, the question involves the geophysical disturbances that we see now as a precursor to those the judgment things um, they may or may not be um, one of the problems we have I'm into global warming a lot because it's in my field um, one of the problems we have is that people see at least in weather systems and climate we see extremes in our time which in our lifetime we've seen climatic changes no question about it but the problem is that historically what is considered normal weather is the statistical data set gained from 1920 to 1940 and unfortunately that period of time it was very stable but if you go backwards in time <clears throat> to a thousand a.d the world was so warm that the Vikings could cross the Atlantic and never see ice. And so we call that the, the local warming. So there was warming back then. And by the way, the global warming in the days of the Vikings probably wasn't due to cars and automobiles. Um, so the problem is that we have all these oscillations in the system. And we don't know, frankly, we don't know what's causing it. So they may be, you know, it may be setting up that way. You just have to be careful, though, that when the prophecies are given to the church, there appears to be no intermediate prediction there. Christ talks about the church. The next event is the rapture. And and while these other things may happen, Israel may come back to the land. Nothing has to happen before the rapture. That's what we mean. We'll define what um, imminency is, Uh, It's been misdefined by its critics. Um, Rosenthal wrote a book, a guy by the name of Rosenthal, uh, back on pre-wrath rapture, and he misdefines um, imminency. And I'm amazed that a guy who professes to have taught pre-tribulationism for 30 years could be so ignorant um, and so misleading in the way he defines imminency. The way he defines it in the book is that no predicted event has to happen before the rapture. That's not imminency. Imminency means no predicted event has to happen, not that it will or that it won't. Israel can come back to the land. That's a predicted event. And that can happen before the rapture. That has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with imminency. So, so the, the point there is that You have to be so careful when you get into this stuff, because it's formidable. And like I'm going to say next week, when we look at the maturity of the Church over the centuries, we are living in the period of time when it appears the Holy Spirit is making eschatology an issue. And In the 16th, 15th centuries, it wasn't an issue. Back in those centuries, soteriology was an issue. Back in the first three or four hundred years, Christology was an issue. And we have to recognize that's factual history, it's not my interpretation. You can see it for yourself if you just look at church history. There appears to be a series of events, a series of emphasis in the Holy Spirit's teaching plan. And what's so striking about that, if you line up church history and you watch the topical sequence, you go to a library and look at systematic theology, it's the same sequence. It's amazing to watch. That the sequence traditionally followed in systematic theology in you know, volume one, volume two, volume three is almost the same as what we observe in church history. And usually the last volumes in a theological set deal with eschatology. And sure enough, today in our day, we're dealing with eschatology. You've got all these arguments between omills, pre-mills, post-mills, pre-trib, mid-trib, three-quarter trib, all the rest going on today. And that's good that the discussion's happening, because I believe God sovereignly is trying to make the Church aware of its destiny, because we're going to face it soon. And this this itself, I mean, as much as the floods and the Church rain, the eschatological debate is a signal of the end times, because God's getting us ready for it. So, anyway, um, our time is shot, but... Next week, we're going to deal with that last part of last year. we going to deal with the maturity of the church. And I hope, as I said, to have some of the notes ready to start.